and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern, and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. And as a bonus, at the end of this episode, I have a clip from my Technology in Space podcast, where I speak with former astronaut John B. Harrington, and a clip from my Full Contact Nerd podcast, where I speak to comic book writer and post-apocalypse novel writer M.R. Carey. Again, thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Rob Havers and Todd DiPostino, creators of Drawing Fire, the editorial cartoons of Bill Malden, published by Pritzker Military Museum and Library, available September 15th, 2020. Uh, Thank you both for speaking with me. Uh, Thanks for having us on. Yeah, our pleasure. Thank you, Chris. So first, Rob, um, how did you get into studying this subject and, and being a part of this project? Well, well, Chris, thanks very much for having, having us on today. Um, my, my background is really a, a, an academic historian, military historian, taught at the British Military Academy in the UK, came to the US um, and sort of segued into public history and run a couple of other organizations, came to the Pritzker Military Museum and Library in Chicago, which has a wonderful mission, which is to acquire and maintain an accessible collection of materials and to develop appropriate programs focusing on the citizen soldier in the preservation of democracy. And upon arriving at this institution, I was delighted to find out that we had an ongoing project, which was the... Um, uh, having acquired a large collection of original cartoons from from the cartoonist Bill Malden, we had a three-pronged project, which was an exhibition, a documentary, and uh, a wonderful book looking at Malden, um, his life and times uh, and career, mm-hmm. illustrated with some of the cartoons. And Malden is, in many ways, the quintessential citizen soldier, experiences World War II, uh, as an infantryman originally and then as a, as a cartoonist and begins to build his fame um, as a, almost as a social commentator and editorial cartoonist grounded in his experience in World War II. So we had this wonderful project ongoing and I was delighted to come on board and be part of it. Um, and, and Todd Di Pastino, who came on to assist us, is one of the foremost authorities on the life uh, and times of Bill Malden. And Todd, how did you, you know, and go back, um, how did you get involved in studying, studying this subject? Unlike Rob, I'm not a military historian. I don't have any background in the military, no family in the military, no real interest in the military. I was a, hist- a social and cultural historian of the United States. I specialized in late 19th, early 20th century history. I wrote a book that had to do with the history of homelessness called Citizen Hobo. And as I was working on that book, I talked to my uh, a great uncle of mine who was in the Army and the Armored Division in, in, uh, in Europe. And I was saying that hobos just disappeared with World War II. And he laughed and said, no, they didn't disappear. They went into the Army. They got drafted. <laughs> he, said, he said, I served with them. And he said, Willie and Joe, Bill Malden's cartoons, those are really just a couple of hobos in all of Drab. And man, you know, that reference made me kind of look up Malden's cartoons. And I had seen them before. I think I'd actually just known it from the Charles Schultz reference. Every every Veterans Day, uh, Charles Schultz would put Snoopy in his World War One flying ace outfit or his World War Two garrison cap. And Snoopy would go out and quaff a few root beers with Bill Malden. And that's really all I knew about it. I got the book up front. I started to read it, and I read it in one sitting. 
And then I, I, this is Bill Malden's, you know, bestseller of 1945. And then I started it again. And this time I started reading it really closely because I realized, first of all, the images, it's, you know, 120 some cartoons and, and, you know, maybe, maybe 25,000, uh, 50,000 words of text, maybe. Um, the, the drawings are, are gripping. They're absorbing. They are masterful. They are unlike anything that I'd ever seen coming out of World War II before. Uh, the humor, though, is arcane. It's, uh, it, it comes from a subculture of the infantry, and I probably understood maybe one out of every five cartoons. Mm -hmm. I wanted to unlock the code. I wanted to understand the humor behind all this. I, I knew that there was some kind of gripping trauma behind the humor. Mm -hmm. Gripping trauma. And it was learning that language and kind of understanding the art and understanding Malden's experience of war on the front lines that just kind of pulled me into the project. And I, I couldn't believe as a historian, I, you know, I went to find out more about Malden and I found very little. I mean, there were a lot of magazine articles about him and newspaper articles and it seemed like every World War II veteran left alive had a, some kind of special tribute to Malden hmm. because he meant so much to them. But in terms of scholarship, there really wasn't much. And the more I, I thought maybe I'd do a scholarly article on him, but the more I learned about him and his charismatic life and his kind of uh, <laughs> crazy personality, I, uh, I thought this warrants a biography, and that's what got me started. So, um, Rob, I see that the, or if I'm not mistaken, the museum has thousands of his cartoons. Is that correct? And how did the museum get so many? Yes, we do indeed. We have um, in the region of, of nearly 5,000 editorial cartoons from 58 to 91, um, another 118 original cartoons from, from his back home um, book, and seven original William Joe cartoons, and we're looking at potentially receiving some more from the, the Malden family. The connection with the, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library and Bill Malden is, is a complex one and a fascinating one. Um, the Museum and Library was founded by Colonel Jennifer Pritzker, who served some 27 odd years in the United States military, uh, United States Army and, and Illinois National Guard. But Colonel Pritzker came to Bill Malden um, courtesy of a, uh, a copy of his uh, upfront that her father had. And Colonel Pritzker became fascinated by the cartoons of Bill Malden from a very early age. And Colonel Pritzker's family has a long history of serving in the United States military, Army and Navy. And so Colonel Pritzker was moved in much the same way as Todd uh, indicated he was by seeing these wonderful images. So Colonel Pritzker, uh, as a young child, w was mo moved by the images of, of Malden's experience in World War II. When the colonel serves in, in, in the military herself, um, she begins to get a better sense as to what that code really means, the code that, that Todd sort of alluded to just then. And Bill Malden spends time in Chicago, and Colonel Pritzker actually goes to school with some of Bill Malden's children. So there is a wonderful sort of connectivity there between uh, seeing Malden, being inspired and um, captured and captivated by these wonderful illustrations that so many people are, military service on the part of Colonel Pritzker, the founding of a museum and library, an institution that is um, willing and able to home 
the types of images and the collection that the Malden family has and that personal piece to the colonel's own father and also knowing the Malden children uh, at school in Chicago. So it's, it's a wonderful confluence of circumstance, if you like. And in terms of the mission of the museum and library and the opportunity it affords with something like this book and the exhibition, it just tells this wonderful citizen soldier story in a fashion that is visually engaging. Um, and as I said, captivating. And it's, I would assume this is the largest collection. The museum has the largest collection of his work. Yes, we, we do. Um, the Library of Congress has, uh, has some uh, elements of, of his work as well. Uh, the 45th Infantry Division Museum, which Malden serves in, uh, in World War II. But uh, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library is really the, the, uh, the mother load now of Malden, of Malden cartoons and Malden materials. Mm-hmm. And it is the mother load. And this is Todd chiming in. And I just want to say I'm so grateful as a scholar that the Pritzker Library and Muse- Museum and Library has had the foresight to collect the thousands of these Mal- Malden drawings. You know, I mean, I, I consider Malden a great, one of the greatest, one of the great 20th century American artists. But at the time, you know, his art was called cartoons and cartoons aren't meant to be saved and preserved and collected and displayed. They're meant to be seen once and kind of thrown away with the, you know, wrapped fish in it. I mean, <laughs> this, this is ephemeral. This is very ephemeral art and it wasn't intended really to be, to be saved and collected and cared for. And, uh, and it, but it's so important that it is cared and collected and, you know, cared for. So I'm very grateful that the museum is, is embarked, has embarked on this project. And I'm just stunned at the number of images they've been able to collect. So considering the large size, how did, what, what theme did you develop as you, you know, pared down what you included in the book? Well, I, you know, we tried to focus on the best of the art. Mm-hmm. I mean, this guy, this is a guy who is doing, you know, just for the listeners who, who aren't familiar with the, the arc, the strange arc of Malden's career, mm-hmm. uh, this is a kid who came out of nowhere, the desert southwest, didn't even graduate high school, uh, joined the uh, Arizona National Guard because he needed, you know, three meals a day and a new suit of clothes. After Pearl Harbor, it gets activated as the 45th Infantry Division. He gets sent overseas with the 45th Division, uh, gets plucked. He's a rifleman. He gets plucked from his unit and placed on Stars and Stripes, which had the largest circulation of any newspaper in the world at the time. He wins the Pulitzer Prize for the cartoons that he did for Stars and Stripes. Uh, he's the youngest Pulitzer Prize winner in history. Uh, by the time he comes home after the war in 1945, 300, car- 300 newspapers around the country are printing his daily cartoons and Malden at age 23, he's a millionaire and a celebrity now. He decides he wants to retire, but the, the, the United Features Syndicate won't let him out of his contract. So he continues to do cartooning until 19, daily cartooning until 1948. Uh, when he does retire, he steps out. He becomes an airplane pilot. He acts in Hollywood movies. He writes for Hollywood. He uh, runs for Congress. And uh, finally, in 1958, gets back into daily editorial political cartooning with a modulated different kind of style and uh, he cartoons for the st louis post dispatch and then for the chicago sun times uh for the next uh, 35 40 years and he becomes the he wins the second pulitzer he becomes kind of one of the deans of american political cartooning right up there with her block at his peak in the 50s and 60s and and early 70s and so what we try to do was to get a good representation of this really varied career that you know one in 45, he's doing Willie and Joe cartoons, and after the war, it's 
Willie and Joe, these two GIs, on the home front, they're civilians trying to figure out how to be civilians. Um, by the late 1950s, early 1960s, he's he's cartooning about Mao Zedong and Fidel Castro and Dwight Eisenhower and uh, you know the, the Kennedys and and uh, you know he's he's traveling the world, um, really to hot spots around the world and kind of capturing and drawings and really incisive, uh, insightful drawings and cartoons. Some of the geopolitical and dynamics also taking place on the on the national scene politically and and just one more thing for the you know listeners to keep in mind mm -hmm. this is a man who when he was with the st louis post dispatch he was doing six original cartoons a week mm -hmm. he had one day off in other words he had to wake up and be timely insightful and funny every single day yeah. and needless to say he didn't do it <laughs> not every single day mm -hmm. i mean he did it maybe four days a week the other two, well, eh, they're not so good. And in fact, every 10 years or so, he tended to repeat his best cartoons. Uh, this is a really demanding, grueling job. Really, really difficult. I mean, it took everything he had, uh, and he gave everything to his art, to these cartoons. And so what we did is we selected the cartoons that we thought represented the best of his art, that had a message that would still resonate today and that represented his different styles and different periods of his career. I'm talking with Dr. Rob Havers, president of the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, and Todd DiPostino, editor of Drawing Fire. You can find more information on their work at pritzkermilitary.org and veteransbreakfastclub.org. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at fullcontactnerd.com and technologyinspace.com. And now back to the podcast. So, Rob, let me ask you this. These cartoons, apart from being, you know, tell, talking about the human condition and also being amusing or entertaining, how, how much um, history, like how much, how much did they add to the knowledge of military history as far as what um, the common soldier had to deal with? Bill Molden's uh, representation of the experience of the infantrymen, the common infantrymen, the dog face as they were known, uh, is incredibly timeless. It, he, he conveys the, through William Joe, the, the, the harsh reality of, and he, he serves in Italy, of the fighting in, in the soft underbelly of Europe in military history terms. As I'm so, sure you know, the Allies believe mistakenly that going through Italy will provide potentially a quick end to the war up through that soft underbelly. The reality is that the terrain and the weather of Italy is played and employed by the German forces in, in a masterly de defensive uh, re retreat. Um, and the reality is that the, the overwhelming material superiority that the Allies possess in air power and in armor and in ammunition and in the, the logistical sinews to serve that war machine is largely negated 
by skillful German resistance and, as I said, that masterful employment of ground and terrain. The only way through is the old-fashioned way, the 2,000-year-plus history of the infantrymen, individual men, individual units on the ground fighting yard by yard. Um, the impact on the men that do that fighting is psychologically um, and physically uh, substantial. And in his cartoons of Willie and Joe, he conveys that reality in, in, a, in a, a visceral fashion. And he also contrasts it with what he sees as the, the complex hierarchical nature of the United States Army, and indeed all armies, but the way in which those men who are at the sharp end fight not only the enemy, but also the, uh, those soldiers at the rear. Um, and... Uh, l less than competent instruction from officers who may well not be totally um, au fait with the situation. And so Malden in these brisk and economical cartoons manages to put across the experience of the ordinary soldier for which he earns um, undying gratitude from veterans who were there at the sharp end and also earns the ire of the top brass on occasion. Famously he is a uh, uh, upbraided by, by General Patton himself for his representation of, of, of the officer class as being remote from the reality of the fighting. And so in terms of conveying military history, well, you can, and we have indeed a whole library on the fighting in Italy and the U.S. experience of that um, campaign, and yet in a few skillful visual representations, Bill Malden can encapsulate that. And thereby, I mean, the skill of any editorial cartoonist or any cartoonist in general is the ability to convey a complex situation uh, masterfully, convincingly, in, in a brief illustration. And Malden does that so well. And so in terms of a contribution to an understanding of military history, this is a great entree for anybody that wants to understand what it was that American troops at the sharp end on the ground went through in that campaign. Did he take uh, any photographs to use as, as you know, supporting materials? <laughs> um, no. I, no, he did not. I'll, I'll let Todd speak to that piece, perhaps. Yeah, no, I just want to thank Rob just gave a, a wonderful overview of the kind of historical importance of Malden and his work. But no, Malden would, how he'd work in Italy, and it's impossible to imagine Malden emerging from anywhere, really, but the Italian campaign in World War II, uh, Malden would go to the front lines for a week or maybe two weeks, and he would live there in the front lines, up front in the foxhole, sometimes maybe for four days, five days, sometimes for as many as, you know, 13, 14 days. Uh, all the while, he would kind of make sketches. He would write in a notebook uh, certain ideas, um, and then he would go back for two weeks into the rear to the comfort of Naples or Rome, wherever the rear was at the time. And he would do two weeks worth of cartoons that he had just gotten from his trip up front. Mm. Then after he had run out, he said he would usually try to squeeze out a few more rear echelon cartoons because it was turned out it was a lot safer in the rear than it was up front. <laughs> and it was terrifying to go up front. And, um, and he said he tried to imagine what the front was like. But whenever he, tried, whenever he stayed away too long from the front, his cartoons weakened. Hmm. He lost it. He lost his vision. He lost his purpose. And he would have to screw up the courage to go to the front lines again. And he said, you know, once you're there at the front, it, you're okay. 
um, it, it's terrifying, of course, but you, you're, you're in the company of others who are also enduring it. He said it's getting there that's the hard part. It's, it's actually arriving there, making the transition from the relative safety of the rear to the extreme danger of the front. And he once asked his uh, mentor and friend, Ernie Pyle, who was really Pyle, the Scripps Howard correspondent, you know, very famous, probably the most read American writer in history, he, who did in words what Malden was doing in pictures. He once asked Ernie Pyle, like, how do you do it? How do you keep going back up front? And Pyle said, we drink. <laughs> you know, we, we get drunk, we go up front, and by the time we get there, we're, we're pretty drunk. And that's how Malden started his drinking habit. Um, and, and that's how he would work. He would, he would then go up front and then keep on shuttling back and forth from the rear to the front. And that, that kind of contrast of life in the rear and the life up front is in his cartoons always. I mean, that is one of the driving themes of his cartoons is the difference between those up front and those in the relative safety of the rear. And I think you have to remember that most Americans during World War II, and probably even today, didn't really understand what the infantry was. Um, they, the infantry was not getting much publicity. In fact, the whole one thing that every side in World War II agreed on, uh, you know, for all they disagreed on, one thing that they all agreed on was they didn't want a replay of World War I. They didn't want a replay of slogging it out in the trenches on the ground. Uh, so every side envisioned a war that would be, you know, spearheaded with armor or with air power, uh, you know, or long range artillery or, you know, naval power. Uh, but we weren't going to slog it out with, you know, millions of boots on the ground. Uh, but that's exactly how the war did devolve in Italy, in the Italian campaign, that campaign up the rugged boot of Italy. There was no amount of firepower. You know, no amount of, of, of air power that was going to dislodge the Germans from their bunkers in the mountains. It would have to be done the hard way, one boot at a time, you know, and, and, um, and that's where Malden found himself. And that's why his two infantry grunts, you know, the dog faces, Willie and Joe, that's why they became icons of World War II because the, the, the war did devolve down in the end to infantry and infantry had gotten no publicity for its role in the war in the early years of the war. I mean, even, you know, naval construction battalions had their own John Wayne movie. <laughs> you know, there are yeah. tons of Bond posters and publicity posters trumpeting the, the role of Marines and, of course, you know, glamorous flyboys. But uh, the infantry, that's where you went, you know, if you couldn't read and write. That's where you went if you, uh, you know, never graduated high school. Uh, that's where you, you went if you didn't have any skills to contribute to the war effort in any other way. Uh, and so they weren't given much publicity. It was Malden that gave them the publicity. So not to say that you need a formal education or anything to be successful at this, but how does a young kid who I think you said didn't graduate high school, how does he develop such awareness, you know, that can create cartoons that touch people like this in either of you? Gosh, the mystery of genius. What do you say, Rob? <laughs> I'll take the easy questions, uh, Todd. Um, that, that's a good synopsis. It is the mystery of genius. I mean, if if you look at if you look at Bill Malden's life, um, you know, hard, it's the definition of hard scrabble. Um, yeah. uh, he he grows up with very little. Um, he sort of pulls himself up by his, his britches or bootstraps. Literally, he he borrows money from his his grandmother to um, enroll in in. Uh, in art school in Chicago, um, one of the few art schools that uh, allows you to, to 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 
to enroll without finishing high school. But he, he early on has, um, I think, possibly self-identified the, the fact that he can draw very adeptly and that he is, he is possessed of, uh, and I, and I think we talk in, in the book, the fact that when, when he's in the army, he, he, uh, his IQ is rated as, is the highest in his unit. So he possesses this innate spark of intelligence, um, and cartooning and, and the adeptness that, um, he, that, that, that he brings to, to the, the visual, the visual word, if you like. It's just the, that combination and that upbringing somehow, it's what he understands best, and he can convey things in a fashion that that few can. And that it's a route to fame and fortune that you could not prescribe. But when you look at the individual pieces, you can quite see how it is that he gets where he goes and what he does. I think. Yeah. What would you say, Todd? Yeah, he was absolutely tremendously ambitious from the time he was a little child. He was a troublemaker. He was a terror. He had a foul attitude. Uh, he got into, he was, he was a diminutive kid. Um, he, he got into more fights on the mountain that he grew up in that, that, uh, than anybody else. And he lost every one of them. You know, he, he just was a, he was a, a holy terror. And he also was something of a, of a, of a prodigy. Um, and his his parents, his mother especially and grandmother, recognized that this kid was had kind of could accomplish any academic task you gave him. I mean, he's reading novels at age five. He's doing elaborate drawings even before that. Uh, he's doing he's wonderful at math. Uh, they kind of dream that he might become a surgeon. He dreams that maybe he'll become a preacher. You know, a famous preacher, an engineer. I mean, he loved railroads, all that kind of stuff. But he was a poor kid. He was a hillbilly from New Mexico. He knew he was never going to be able to afford any kind of education that would get him a career like that. He also knew that probably his easiest skill, the, the thing that came most naturally to him was drawing. But he was never going to be able to, you know, afford the kind of years and years of tutoring to become a fine artist. Uh, but he did read an article in Popular Mechanics that you can make a boatload of dough by doing cartoons. Hmm. And that, uh, you know the 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 creator of Blondie and the creator of Popeye. They were they were making a hundred thousand a year, and you know at age fourteen he thought that sounded pretty good, and so he really focused uh, from the time he was really a child on becoming a cartoonist. When he enrolled for his one year at the Chicago Academy of Fine Arts, and just like Rob said, it was the only school that would take a high school dropout. Uh, he had to promise that he would be a fine artist, a painter. And of course he wasn't. He was studying the whole time to be a cartoonist. <laughs> and, uh, and he would do 10 original cartoons a night. He would not go to sleep until he submitted to magazines 10 original cartoons every single night. And he did it for one year every single night. I mean, that translates into thousands of cartoons. He trained himself to do it. He worked really, really, really hard because he wanted to make a, a pile of dough. And he also wanted recognition. I think he wanted people to pay attention to him. I think he wanted to get people's attention. And he had a special eye for mm, those who were down and out, mm -hmm. for those who were on the, you know, the, the sharp end of, of life, for those who were, you know, overlooked. He felt he was overlooked. And so he was always kind of a champion of the downtrodden. And, uh, that, that, along with his ambition, really fueled his career. What did he do to uh, get onto Stars and, Sh and Stripes? 
he's from the from the time he joined i mean from the few, first few months that he joined the 45th infantry division in 1940 uh, he the just when he joined the division started a newspaper called the 45th division news it was an experiment to try and boost uh, soldiers morale he immediately saw that they didn't have a cartoon he volunteered to be a cartoonist he thought that it might liberate him from the drudgery of the kind of quartermaster corps he was working in and um and he found that he was given at one afternoon off a week to do the cartoon <laughs> uh he got one afternoon training off friday afternoon and he made the most of it i mean he he quickly became one of the most popular men in the 45th Infantry Division because he was reflecting their lives back to them. Mm-hmm. You know, the mud, the marches, the, the, the drill sergeants, the, the equipment, you know, the drudgery, the leaky tents. I mean, the drudgery of life in the infantry at Fort Sill, Oklahoma at the time. It, it just made him, it made him a legend in the division. And, and it was a, it was a fascinating, interesting, probably the most ethnically diverse infantry division that we had in World War II because there were a whole lot of Native Americans, American Indians in that division. Hmm. So, um, Rob, let me ask you this. Um, since the book, it, it, from the description, the book says that it includes uh, cartoons from other hot spots um, in the U.S. and around the world, you know, following World War II. Can you tell me a little bit about what he did in those hot spots, his involvement with that? Yes, indeed. Um as Todd said, th- there's a commonality, really, if you like, in terms of subjects that, that Bill focuses on. So he looks at the infantry, the sort of the, where, where the rubber hits the road in terms of meeting, closing with the enemy and killing him. And throughout the rest of his career, he's often focused on those areas, especially in in U.S. life, where um, underserved populations get uh, uh, d- deserve more visibility. So his time in Chicago in St. Louis, he's looking at the um, some of the big challenging social movements of, of the the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, equal rights for women, um, desegregation, the the big issues that that the United States deals with. But he is also returning to his roots essentially as a war correspondent. He t- spends time in Korea during the Korean War in the early 1950s. He goes to Vietnam at the very beginning of U.S. involvement in, in, in that conflict. His own son is serving as a hol- helicopter pilot there. He comes under fire once again in Vietnam, not the Germans this time, but the uh, the, the North Vietnamese. Um, he spends time in uh, in the Middle East. He is there in May of 1967, days before the Six-Day War, that recasts that part of the world decisively. Um, and his final conflict really... Uh, or his f- final time as a war correspondent is is the first Gulf War, Desert Shield and Desert Storm. So Bill Malden, from that um, beginning in Italy, is really uh, the the genius of Malden is then seen narrating conflicts around the world for the next forty odd years and conflicts at home, domestic considerations as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He really had a knack for uh, finding war wherever it was, for being at the being at a place where a riot was going to break out or a you know battle was going to break out. I mean, just like Rob said, he arrives in Vietnam uh, 
in, in, in originally in Saigon in, in the last week of January 1965. He goes to a remote place nobody's ever heard of called Pleiku, where Camp Holloway is, the 52nd uh, Aviation Battalion. And he arrives there on February 7th, uh, 1965, just to visit his son, has a few drinks with his son, goes to bed in his hooch, and is woken up by explosions that at 2 a.m. It's the attack at Pleiku. It's kind of the, you know, an important turning point in the war. He's the only correspondent there. He's not really there as a correspondent. He takes pictures. He makes notes. He, 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 he tends to the wounded. Um, he lo loads people into, uh, into C-123s to be evacuated in the wee hours of the morning. And there he is, you know, the, the whole, uh, the whole country's eyes are upon him because he's the only one reporting from Pleiku about this serious Viet Cong attack. And, and, and he just seems to do that over and over and over again. He's in Oxford, Mississippi when there is, he just happens to be there when, uh, James Meredith is, is being admitted as a student and a huge riot breaks out. Uh, you know, he's in Chicago, of course, for the, for the uh, Democratic National Convention in August 1968. As Rob said, he goes to Korea in 52. He's, he just happens to be in Israel when the Six Day War begins. And uh, it's just, it, you know, it just happens over and over again. Uh, he really has a nose for crisis. And as I said in the biography, when there wasn't one that he could cover, he would try and stir one up himself. Hmm. There's a great exhibition at the, the the National Infantry Museum down at Fort Benning that looks at the history of, of the role of the infantrymen in the United States Army from um, c colonial time to the present day. And the sort of w w one of the centerpiece um, parts of the exhibition uh, is something called the last 100 yards. Um, and it's something you can only do in really in, in, in the space that a museum display offers. And it's essentially the National Infantry Museum demonstrating to the wider American public, those who have served and those who have not, that the role of the infantryman is essentially once the artillery is done, the air support is over, once the precision guided munitions have done their bit, that last 100 yards is what the infantryman covers on his own with his with his section or, or company or platoon it's the sharp end literally and bill malden as that infantryman experienced that and if you use that as an analog if you like for the rest of his life bill malden is there covering that last 100 yards in korea in vietnam six day war the gulf war Democratic National Convention in Chicago in 68, and James Meredith in Mississippi, Bill Malden is there. Those last 100 yards, whatever the cause, whatever the fight, that's where you find Bill Malden. And that really um, is, is so apparent in his work, I think. Gosh, is that a great way of looking at it. That's a great uh, a great way of conceiving it. I think I'm going to steal that from you, Rob, and use that. Because, <laughs> More than because welcome. It, it, it's so true. It's it, he, he has very little patience for kind of the abstractions of war and of comp peace with honor, you know, appeasement, uh, um, you know, the, the, the domino theory. I, I mean, he, he has very little patience for that kind of abstraction. For him, life came down, conflict came down, war always came down to the personal, mm -hmm. the intimate. The individuals involved, that the pound of flesh that it took from those who were in it, who were up front, that was the focus of his work and the focus of his career. That's what it always came down to. If you wanted to, if you were going to justify a war, you better justify what it does to those who are up front. 
I'm talking with Dr. Rob Havers, president of the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, and Todd DiPostino, editor of Drawing Fire. You can find more information on their work at pritzkermilitary.org and veteransbreakfastclub.org. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at fullcontactnerd.com and technologyinspace.com. Now back to the podcast. Maybe sort of answered this question, but I'll ask it. Would would you consider him, either of you, would you say he's more of an adrenaline junkie or more of a social worker or just a mix? <laughs> if you had to choose between the two, I'd say more the adrenaline junkie. <laughs> because, yeah, he seems... But it's more nuanced than that. I mean, I, right. I, no, I do think that he was a crisis-driven personality. And I'm sorry if I'm stepping on Rob, but... Um, but he, he, his work is absolutely better when he's in a crisis. It's, it's remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable. The worse things get in war or on the home front, the better his art is. And it just happens over and over again when he's comfortable, when not much is happening, he loses his edge. I mean, and I think he recognized that in himself. And I think it was detrimental to his personal life. I mean, you know, it's it's hard to be the son or the wife or the, you know, family member of somebody who's chasing around war and riot and conflict all the time. Uh, and, and it was. I mean, I think his lifestyle was hard on his family. Uh, but it, his art was the better for it. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Todd. I, I think that the, the, there is a strong social conscience apparent in all of, of Malden's work, Um from from the very beginning to the very end but where and again it comes back to that sort of that earlier analogy about that that last 100 yards when when the crisis is at its height that's where Malden likes to be and that's where he is the most productive the most insightful and the most incisive in terms of the images that he is conveying and I asked that because you earlier, one of you said that he was considering being a preacher when he was a young kid. So that's why I was wondering about the whole so caring, caring for others, the social worker aspect. Yeah, I, I, he certainly cared for others. I mean, he was a crusader. Right. He was, uh, you know, he was somebody who had to always be fighting a battle on behalf of the underdog. That's what motivated him in life. And I think... As a, you know, he thought as a child, maybe as a preacher, he could do something like that. And he also, you know, he, he wanted attention. He wanted the world to recognize him. He wanted to be recognized, I think, for the, for the genius that he was, uh, to put it simply. Although it is, I want to say, you know, we call him a cartoonist. And I always struggled when I was working on the biography with that. And I think that's something he struggled with too. He was asked what, he was asked what he was and he would say i'm a cartoonist and and that means that i'm not good enough to be an artist and uh and i think that was always at the front of his mind that he was always he always had this chip on his shoulder he was not educated he was not you know he hadn't gone through art school to to you know a degree he he um he was just a cartoonist but of course he was much more than a cartoonist and his work 
is much more than a bunch of ephemeral cartoons. They really are collectively, I mean, his World War 700-odd World War II cartoons are, are a masterpiece of 20th century American art. Um, I remember talking to Stanley Meltzoff, who was another illustrator for Stars and Stripes, one of Malden's colleagues when I was working on the book. And Meltzoff said, yeah, you know, cartoonist is too little a word for what Malden was. Artist might be too exalted a word. I call him a picture maker. Hmm. He was a picture maker. And I think that that's a decent fit. He was a picture maker. And he, what he pictured was really a huge swath of 20th century America. What, um, either published or unpublished, what was his most um, detailed or expansive uh, work? Do you know? His de most detailed or expansive work? Uh, you know, I, I would say it, probably his, his World War II work. I mean, that's, he was immersed in it for, for years. I mean, that... You know, he, he was immersed in the life up front for years, and so that is kind of the most detailed and immersive work that he he did. Now, now Malden was he had a certain kind of a genius. He was not someone who could who he was a fine writer, by the way, a, a very good writer. But he tried to write novels, could never do it. He tried to write plays, could never do it. He he tried to do oil paintings, couldn't really do it. You know, he was not somebody who was going to be able to kind of sit quietly in a room. And, you know, delve into his imagination to create this great work of art. Mm. He had to be out in the world mixing it up. And so uh, everything he did, he did kind of in interaction with his environment. Mm. It wasn't an experiment, a formal experiment that he was doing with his, you know, aesthetic imagination. It was him kind of mixing it up with ordinary people out in the world. Mm. And that's how he worked. And the more he mixed it up. Uh, the better his work was. And I would say that, yeah, his his most kind of consistent, immersive work was the work he did with the infantry in World War II. And actually, yeah, I like that answer, but I was actually wondering about, an, was there any individual pieces, you know, that maybe, ah. you know, that had the most detail um, compared to any uh, others? Yeah, I can think of a few. I can think of a few. Every once in a while. Because, you know, of course, as a cartoonist, you know, what Malden said is the few, kind of the fewer lines you have to use, the better. Hmm. Um, the fewer words you have to use, the better. In fact, the perfect cartoon is one with no caption. Like, hmm. You could just see it at an instant. And I mean, if you think about how people consume cartoons, not comic art, but cartoons in the newspaper, historically, you, you want to glance at it, get the point, chuckle, and then move on. Uh, and so that was his audience. Uh, however, as a comic artist, he did sometimes do really involved detail work. Uh, you know, for example, I mean, he did a he he did a beautiful drawing of an elaborate Gothic church in Spain, for example, in the 1950s. That was that he did for Collier's magazine. Um, he did also for the 45th Division News. He did a special uh, two-page spread, a Christmas. Um, spread that was very detailed look, kind of a humorous look of a GI's, you know, day in the life of a GI uh, in the winter of 1943. So he would take time at the drawing board to, you know, fill in incredible detail, but he was always working not to fill in, but to take out, mm -hmm. to make it as spare as possible, to get the point across with as few lines as possible. Mm -hmm. Okay. Rob, when you were going through the archives or the collection, um, what, what, uh, well, tell me what that was like and what uh, did you find that was most surprising to you? 
Well, I give full credit to our wonderful uh, curators at the museum and library here who, who know the collection far better than I. Um, uh, and I've really um, only glimpsed some of the highlights. I, th I think what has struck me, and, and Todd touched on it there, and Todd discusses it in the book, is the way in which Malden was able to adapt his style to circumstance. Um, there's a wonderful vignette in, in the book that talks about how Malden relocates back to or to the West Coast and begins to using a, a, an early, and I won't say prototypical, but an early fax machine um, to send his cartoons in um, rather than being on site. And so is required to adapt that sort of um, how he conveys the images to the demands of a, of, a, of a facsimile machine that doesn't pick up detail terribly, terribly effectively. And so if you look at Malden's cartoons from beginning to end, they evolve undoubtedly, but there is a, always the sort of sense that um, he, he is capturing somehow, he, he is conveying in a fashion that makes the most sense at the time. And he is, he is neither constrained by a particular style although a Malden is always recognizable and he is he seems eminently adaptable and I think again that 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 visual adaptable that artistic adaptability that's conveyed in the in the visual uh, nature of the cartoons is sort of reflective of his life too which is um, one that really is pretty adaptable from from you know that that hard scrabble youth as we talked about to you know, candidate for Congress, um, movie star, uh, double Pulitzer Prize winner. Um, there's a sort of shape-shifting ability of Malden himself that is reflected in the cartoons themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let me ask you this, Rob. Um, so with a military museum, and you can use the, the Malden exhibit as part of the answer, how do you balance between exhibits that maybe aren't as popular with the public but are important to show versus those which draw larger crowds and um you know but maybe take up more more time or space than other exhibits which you'd like to show well i i think um the the, the challenge of an organization like ours is that uh you have to find a way in for general audiences as well as those who know the material more more fully um one of our the key planks of our mission is to be a um a bridge between those who have served those who serve and indeed those who will serve and the civilian populace of this country the percentage of those who have served in the military in the united states at the moment is um not quite at an all-time low but it is is comparatively um, comparatively low and, and service tends to run in families. Colonel Pritzker is a good example of this. So you come from a family where uh, your grandfather, your father has served, um, you yourself may serve, your daughter may serve. And so there is, uh, it's a cloistered world in some sense and military history itself can be somewhat impenetrable to some people. And so opportunities to reach people where they are um, are well served by the likes of a Bill Malden cartoon. We talked a lot earlier about the uh, the specific nature, the slog of the campaign in Italy. Um, it doesn't get the um, the the movie attention that D-Day, the sixth of June, Normandy has had. Um, and so, how do you get people interested in that? Something 
like a Malden exhibition provides an entree to that. And I, we also referenced earlier the wonderful way the Infantry Museum conveys that last 100 yards. Those are the kind of things you can, however, do in a museum space. So the Bill Malden collection for our institution it is a wonderful vehicle both to convey the complexities of life in the military um, and also the, the, the broader post-war period that has seen military service all around the globe. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know wh which of you is best to answer this, but how did you get um, sort of the, the many celebrities that did um, essays for the book? How did you get those individuals? Uh, well, I, I can speak to this a little bit, and then I'm sure Todd can jump in. Um, we, we have a, a great array of, uh, of authors, um, two that stand out, of course, I think, um, that, that your audience would know, Tom Hanks, who, who writes a wonderful preface. Um, Tom Brokaw also writes a contribution. Tom Brokaw, of course, um, who, who needs no introduction, but uh, author of The Greatest Generation, has an, an understanding of that generation that, that fights and wins the Second World War, um, and is himself a child of World War II, and was very influenced by Malden. Tom Hanks, too, um, he has served in uniform on our screens for, for decades, perhaps most memorably as, as Captain Miller and Saving Private Ryan. Um, both of these individuals believed that Malden was an individual who needed to be known more fully. And our book and our exhibition and documentary, we intend will bring Malden to new generations as well as interest those who do know Malden. But neither of those individuals with their huge reputations needed much convincing because they have a passion for Malden for many of the very many reasons Todd and I have tried to articulate and simply wanted to have that on record and wanted to pass that passion on. And we also have Jean Schultz, the, the, the widow of um, uh, Chuck Schultz, the, uh, the uh, creator of Peanuts, who also wanted to make a contribution and connect those two great cartoonists. And, and Todd mentioned um, some of their connectivity earlier on. So it was not a difficult sell. We are very grateful to all our authors for, for what they have written. But it was really, it was, I nearly said a crime of passion. It's not a crime, but they were motivated by their own enthusiasm for Malden himself. Absolutely. And simply and simply wanted, a, yeah, another vehicle in which to convey that. So it was it was one of the easiest cells that we've ever had, and I think Todd would probably agree. <laughs> yeah, was it? Yeah, didn't have to twist their arm. I mean, Tom Brokaw also said that he, uh, you know, he he owed Malden for uh, being a model of journalism, the kind of, you know, crusading journalism that inspired him to get into that line of work. And I have to say, just what Rob said that to, to reiterate what Rob said that I think what attracted them all to the Malden project was. The fact that Malden and his work really does make the inscrutable relatable. It makes the um, the intimidating understandable. Uh, it, it bridges that gap between the civilian world and the military world. There really is a severe military-civilian divide that has only gotten bigger over the years. And, you know, I'm Exhibit A. I'm, I'm a civilian and, and really had very little understanding of the military world. Working with on Bill Malden's cartoons not only opened my eyes to what it's like not only to be in war but to serve in the military, it changed my life, 
I mean, I, uh, I ended up quitting my job as a professor and uh, founding the Veterans Breakfast Club, which is a platform where we hold events where uh, veterans can come and share their stories with the public. It's meant, it's intended, it's a nonprofit that, whose mission really is to close that gap, to uh, give veterans a chance to kind of talk about their uh, transformative experiences serving in the military. And it's something that, you know, we're still doing today, 12 years later. Uh, virtually online with Veterans Breakfast Club events. And everybody's welcome to come and, and hear the stories. And it really all, from my perspective, goes back to kind of Malden taking this distant, difficult to understand, unrelatable experience and making it something that I could relate to. He must have had a lot, or it seems, I would assume he experienced a great deal of trauma and perhaps tragedy in his life, at least losing maybe people he knew or friends or something like that. Was, was that the case? And, and Oh, yeah, bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he had a pretty traumatic childhood also. I mean, he, he left home at age 14. He and his older brother, age 15, pulled an old Model T out of the family junk pile, got it running until it broke down in Phoenix. They started a new life in Phoenix, Arizona, you know, living on the front porch of a boarding house, just painting signs, taking odd jobs. Uh, until he finally had to join the, you know, the, the National Guard just to kind of keep his, uh, you know, keep his belly full. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, but, but war was a real trauma for him. It was, it's kind of undescribable, uh, the kind of horror and brutality that he witnessed. Um, I, I mean, the 45th Infantry Division alone had a, what, a 400% turnover rate. I mean, it, it, it was, you know, he, he would go, to the front lines and, and visit his old unit and go away, come back two weeks later, and they were all new men. They were all replacements because every single one on the front lines had been killed or wounded. It was it, it was a, a trauma that he tried hard to deal with and to put away. And what, what made it kind of worse psychologically was that he was profiting off the war. He was becoming rich and famous. They were dying. And he was spared their fate only because of his talent. And he knew that. And it made him redouble his effort to devote his cartoons to them, to kind of try to tell the world what was happening to those men up front. Uh, and it was something that never left him. He, I think he was always trying to outrun it. He, uh, he was an alcoholic, you know, dr heavy drinker uh, his whole life, a kind of a binge drinker. That was undoubtedly related to the war. Um, he never could quite escape it. So, Rob, I'll, I'll ask you this first. Um, so we've talked a lot about, you know, what the book does, the goals and this sort of thing. Um, what would you add to that as far as what you hope um, the book will do for readers? Well, uh, the, the, the book, I hope, will bring Malden alive to a host of new gener a new generation essentially mm -hmm. and by new generation i don't necessarily mean the young um but th those who have grown up in the post-war period may remember malden cartoons uh, in the newspapers um but also to indicate both the sort of um the extent to which uh if history doesn't repeat itself um, I think Mark Twain said this, it most certainly rhymes. And there are consistent themes that Bill Malden addressed in different conflicts that he returned to again and again, because there is a constancy or a consistency in some of the challenges that humanity faces 
decade on uh, decade on decade. We are grappling at the moment in 2020 with concerns about um, racial justice um, and injustice in society, the same kind of things that Malden saw in the 1960s, the same kinds of things that he witnessed in New Mexico in the 1930s and indeed in World War II. So it's to demonstrate that there is um, a continuity in the human experience. There is a positivity in it in that there is uh, Malden often in capturing the worst, also hints at the best of humanity. Um, and I think fundamentally, it is what we would like to achieve with the book is simply for more people to understand who Bill Malden is and was and what he could do um, and to be inspired by that, um, but also just simply to remember him. Um, Bill Malden deserves to be better known today, um, and this is a small contribution to, to ensuring that. And given that, as we commented earlier on, we we are the mother load now of Malden materials, we hope to stimulate greater interest from researchers, from those who come and uh, to either host our temporary exhibition when it tours the country, visit our exhibition when it opens in the spring of 2021, look at our documentary, and be inspired in a way. Um, understand what Malden did, but be inspired also to make a difference in your own life. Todd, do you have any anything to add to that? Yeah, I was going to say that you could do worse. If you wanted to cover kind of uh, American and world history from, say, Pearl Harbor to the fall of the Berlin Wall, you could do worse than to leaf through, you know, 50 years of Bill Malden's cartoons. I mean, I mean, it's a real education. It's it's fun. It's insightful. Um, it, you learn a lot. You learn a lot. And you learn a lot about what you thought you knew. Uh, but you maybe have forgotten about the, you know, s certain distinctive relationship that, say, Dwight Eisenhower and Richard Nixon had as president and vice president. You, you forget the complications, the complicated relationship that, say, China and North Korea had during the, you know, the, Nor the, the Korean War. Um, all these kind of nuances are just brought out beautifully in these cartoons. And I think it's a reminder, not only that, you know, Malden is best known for his World War II work, but he continued to do just premier work in the decades after. And, and also just what, like, the great age of political or editorial cartooning really was like. Mm -hmm. How much was captured in a simple frame and a simple caption. Mm -hmm. Was he very involved with uh, cartoonist uh, organizations? I'd say yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, he was. He was... Uh, yeah, he was, uh, you know, feted and awarded, and, and he would often go to the, you know, National Association of, uh, of you know, editorial cartoonist conventions. Um, he had many friends who were cartoonists, Charles Schultz, among others, Mike Peters, he helped mentor Mother Goose and Grimm, you know, cartoonist. Uh, yeah, he was, he was, uh, you know, he, he was very generous with the younger generation, Gary Trudeau. I think would say he owed much to much to Malden. Uh, yeah, he really he gave of himself in later years. Good. Pat Oliphant, mm -hmm. Chris, and I think just to piggyback on, on what both Todd and I have said, yeah. um, th th there is an accessibility to Bill Malden's cartoons. Um, you, you can look at those images and they draw you in. And I think what we'd like to accomplish as well is that these cartoons, in and of themselves, on display in our exhibition or, or through this book, they will prompt those who see them to think again about history, to want to find out more about, for example, the Six-Day War or even the assassination of, of, of JFK 
on the back of the way in which Malden conveyed those events at the time. Um, and so they're an aid and that entry point to a study of history, which is what an organization like ours is, is always about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd say that's very valuable to do, very important. Um, can you, Were there any difficulties in getting the book finished or published? Well, you know, you always have to corral the writers to get their, their copy in in time, but... Uh, <laughs> And I'm one of the writers, so I, you know, criticizing myself here. But um, I, th- I think really, I mean, from my perspective, from the editor's perspective, uh, it, it's a matter of which cartoons to choose. I mean, out of the 5,000-odd cartoons we reviewed, you know, we could only select 150. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a tough selection process, but um, I think we managed to get a good representation. Mm-hmm. Does the museum publish many books? Yeah, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library has a, a long history of, of publishing um, books on military history topics, often grounded in collections we have in the museum and library. Um, uh, most recently, uh, we published a book called uh, Zero to Hero about the uh, uh, experiences of uh, Alan J. Lynch, a, a local Chicagoland Medal of Honor winner from the Vietnam War. We are uh, in the... Um, uh, early phases of publishing a book called 100 Cities, 100 Memorials, which commemorates a project we were involved with as part of the World War I Centennial Commission to provide um, funds and support to um, refurbish 100 separate World War I memorials that have fallen into into di- disarray. Um, and other books include the, the general um, about the experiences of uh, Major General Levine, who was one of the first American soldiers into um, the concentration camps. Um, we also published a book called Less We Forget, grounded in our poster collection um, that looked at the U.S. involvement and indeed World War One itself. So this is this is the latest in a long line of uh, substantial contributions to to military history and to an understanding of the military. So, a quick aside to that. I actually went um, looking, apparently in D.C., they, they I don't know, planted or placed um, bricks, white bricks for World War I um, casualties, D.C. casualties, all along Connecticut Avenue, I think it was. Um, they're all grown over, but I think I came across one or two stones, you know, just totally smoothed over at this point. But, um, yeah, I think there's a memorial there that I don't think many people know about at all. No, no, indeed, um, and the, uh, the 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 sort of culminating, uh, the the final entry in One Hundred Cities, One Hundred Memorials is the, is the World War One Centennial Commission Memorial uh, in in DC. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're absolutely right. In many towns and cities across this country, great or small, there are often unremarked and unnoticed um, commemorations of, of that sacrifice one hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. And so, bringing those to life and thereby the sacrifice and the contribution of those who fought in that conflict um th- that was that that project uh, in in essence mm-hmm. and um todd do you have any writing projects coming up oh i'm always writing something <laughs> um yeah with the veterans breakfast club you know we're now we're you know a media production company so we're we're uh, always writing something digitally or or um you know, doing a video or online. I, I there is a book project that I am working on that is a uh, biography of the uh, artist Don Freeman, mm-hmm. 
who was a, a really important uh, social realist in the 1930s and 40s, uh, but he became famous much later as a children's writer, and he wrote the book Corduroy. Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderful children's book, and it's the story of his kind of remarkable life and his transformation into a children's author. Hmm. So where, um, and uh, Rob, I'll let you answer first, where can people find uh, you or your museum online? Uh, online, you can find us at uh, pritzkermilitary.org, um, and you can find us in person at 104 South Michigan Avenue uh, in the heart of Chicago. Um, we are open, um, somewhat restricted hours, um, but we have a, a exhibition looking at the end of World War II, the Allied Road to Victory, and uh, we will have in the spring of 2021 uh, our Malden exhibition that will um, look in greater detail at many of the themes and the images that we have discussed today. Mm-hmm. And I believe you have a YouTube channel where you post. Uh... We do. Uh, we have a YouTube channel. And if you if you use our, our website as a starting point, you can see um, many, many programs looking at all aspects of military history uh, and um, the, the U.S. military in war and peace across all branches and all time periods. Um, a lot of good programs, a lot of symposia, um, and you heard me uh, distill some of our publications, but a lot of great resources if you have an interest in military history. And Todd, do you have a website or a social media for your your work? Yes, indeed. The VeteransBreakfastClub.org is our website, and our social media is, of course, Veterans Breakfast Club on Facebook, and we have a YouTube channel, and we do four programs a week. We... Uh, we do Veterans Breakfast Club Live uh, on, on Wednesday mornings. We do Veterans Breakfast Club Live Happy Hour on Friday evenings. Uh, we do The Greatest Generation Live on the weekend. And then we have a podcast, The Scuttlebutt. And um, we are, uh, w- you know, we're all virtual now. Everybody's welcome to join us. And it's quite fun. We just get veterans together and have them share stories and have people ask some questions. That sounds pretty fascinating. Oh, it's wonderful. Absolutely That's- wonderful. Good. And of, of, of necessity, we, we are virtual, too, with our programs, but Pritzker Military Presents is our signature uh, uh, television program shown on, on PBS in Chicago and increasingly PBS networks across the country. And we're also doing uh, Pritzker Military Presents on the home front, uh, roughly once a week presentation, discussion on, on topics of military history and, and military civil relations. So uh, find us on our website. Excellent. Excellent. So that's all the questions I have. Um, do either of you have any final thoughts or words? No, I think that that was a good discussion, Chris. Yeah. Thought, thank you. It was a good discussion, and it, I, it, I think we we realized at some point in this project that next year, 2021, was going to be the year of uh, the Bill Malden centennial. He would have been 100 years old, and so I think it's a a fitting kind of tribute to him. This drawing fire, the editorial cartoons of Bill Malden. I'm grateful that. Uh, the Pritzker Museum decided to do it and and invited me to be a part of it. All right. Uh, Well, thank you both for speaking with me. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Our pleasure. Thank you, Chris. And now for the bonus clips. The first one is taken from my podcast, Technology in Space, where I interviewed John B. Harrington, and he talks about starting out as a naval aviator and getting into the astronaut program. So when you so your progression from naval aviator to astronaut um, was it sort of a premeditated a planned progression or how did that go? Well, it started off you know I I joined the Navy because uh, I I tutored a guy in calculus 
who was a Navy captain who, who do, flew Dauntless dive bombers in World War II. And uh, he convinced me to join the Navy. You know, I flew as a kid, but it wasn't until much later that I actually thought, well, I could do this for a career. And I joined the Navy, and I went off and I, I hunted Russian submarines for a few years. You know, I used to dream about it as a kid. I used to play in a cardboard box and dream I was going to the moon. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until I was in my first, my first squadron. You know, when I was a, I realized if I wanted to be an astronaut, I'd need to stay in the Navy and go to test pilot school. And then, um, you know, you have to apply to it. It's a very competitive thing. I applied and a couple times. And when I got there, I realized that, hey, all those people I watched on TV back in the 60s, half of them were Navy test pilots. Hmm. Oh, by the way, their names were on the plaques of all the graduates. <laughs> so you start seeing like names like John Young, Alan Shepard, you know, Gene Cernan, all these guys, Jim Lovell. These are all naval aviators, you know, and, and they were naval test pilots. And so um, if you don't apply, you won't be an astronaut. Mm-hmm. And I needed a master's degree, so I changed my career path in Navy so they would send me to get a master's degree. Mm. And they did. They sent me to Monterey, and I got um, a master's in aeronautical engineering and applied a couple times, and I was very fortunate to get uh, get an interview. And I guess they liked my story, and, uh, you know, they, they could go to space with me for a couple of weeks and not, uh, you know, that I, I wouldn't be too chatty. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, but, uh, yeah. So, so at what point um, did you think, did it hit you like, wow, this could actually happen? You know, I could realize my dreams, like, where in that? Well, it's, it's not that I realized that I could do that when I got a phone call, you know, and said, hey, come down and we'll interview you. Hmm. Um, you know, that's, but it was the idea is that you, I applied, you know, knowing if I didn't apply, I wouldn't have any chance. Hmm. But I applied with the, the possibility, but I just thought it was a really, really slim, you know, it's a slim possibility. Hmm. Um, but I had the requisite, you know, I did well in my squadrons. I had, you know, decent grades, maybe not early on. But I figured it out later on, and I did well on my master's degree. And so um, I think NASA looked at it and said, you know, does he have the requisite, you know, skill set? You know, and like say, can we go camping with this guy for two weeks and get along with him? You know, uh, you can be this. I tell people, you, you can be the smartest person in class, yeah, but if you can't work well with others, NASA's not going to hire you. Mm-hmm. So be competent, be a good communicator, be a good team player. You know, have a good solid background and something that NASA could utilize mm-hmm. uh, in their interest, and then uh, you know that you you can go through that little wicket. And I think I did. The second clip is from my podcast, Full Contact Nerd, where I speak to author and comic book writer M. R. Carey about a military robot he put in his latest novel, The Book of Coley. Did you do? Did you have to do any research um, as you wrote this? A little bit, not, not not a huge amount. I did some geographical research. I wanted the um, the geography of the Calder Valley uh, and the geography of, of Coley's uh, journey to make make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but that wasn't a huge a huge uh, deal. Uh, and I did some research into, for example, one of the characters, Ursula, uh, who we meet in the first book, has um, a, a robot, a tame robot that that uh, goes follows along behind her and it's a it's a military robot it she calls it the drudge mm. it's a, it's a, it's like a horse with no head mm. it's a sort of big bulky metal body and four spindly metal legs uh, and a little gun mounted um amidships as it were uh, and that's mm. based on existing technology you know those those robots are are being trialed now by the US army and we've seen We've seen some quite scary footage of what the, what the prototypes look like and what they can do. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I, I looked, I looked at that footage, and I looked at the um, the sort of uh, what we know about the specification of those particular machines. Um, but an awful lot of it is just invented um, uh, by you know, by whole cloth, as it were. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep track of my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. Thanks for listening.